0: What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Dan Levitan is today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast. After graduating from Duke University and Harvard Business School, Dan spent 15 years in investment banking in Manhattan, where he focused on the B2C space, helping take more than 100 companies public, make strategic acquisitions, and monetize the equity value they had created. Then at age 40, Dan decided to pivot his career by quitting his job, moving to Seattle, and partnered with Howard Schultz to form Maveron. Their venture capital firm focuses on seed and early-stage consumer-only businesses, and they've experienced countless successful exits. Dan's an active member of the Seattle community. He's a great friend, devoted husband, and proud father of two beautiful, like seriously beautiful daughters. Welcome, Dan.
1: Thanks, Shauna. Great to be here, and thank you for that.
0: Did you like the intro?
1: Very kind, very kind.
0: I'm going to put you on the spot with some rapid fire. You ready? Fire away. Okay, so at the end of the day, I know you love Seattle, but East Coast or West Coast? West Coast. Oh, all right. I think of you as my New Yorker friend, so. Next
1: Gen, I'm always growing. West Coast.
0: West Coast. Um, favorite restaurant?
1: Favorite restaurant. C.K.'s in Haley, Idaho.
0: C.K.'s? <laughs> There's a California Pizza Kitchen. <laughs> C.K.'s.
1: C-P-K, oh, C.P.K. is California Pizza Kitchen. So what's C.K.'s CK? is... A uh, slow cooking restaurant in Haley, Idaho, oh. by one guy named Chris Kastner, who's just an artisan. And he's been at it every day, and he lives in the middle of nowhere.
0: So he's got a good life. Yeah. I'm going to have to check it out. Um, okay. So I know you love Seattle, but what's the thing that you missed most about New York? I feel like, David, you're going to say like the bagels or something.
1: My friends. Oh, your friends. I have a lot of friends that I grew up with there.
0: Yeah. Um, what's the trait that you most admire in your parents?
1: My most admired trait in my dad is I got my heart from my dad and I got my grit, resilience, determination, and belief that anything is possible from my mom.
0: Nice. Are they still alive? No. They're not alive. I'm glad that we can uh, talk about them because I've always been curious about your parents because you're a badass, and I feel like we need to attribute some of that to them. Absolutely. Um, okay. Is there an entrepreneur that you would most like to meet that you haven't yet met?
1: Probably Elon Musk.
0: Do you know that I've had like four people say Elon Musk? Not on that question. Just in general, his name keeps coming up. Everyone's kind of obsessed with him.
1: Well, I think we're living in a world where everyone, communication is frequent, and in terms of serial outrageous companies, he's probably as serial and outrageous as, as anyone are. I can think of.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. What word best describes you as an investor?
1: Maybe contrarian.
0: Oh, contrarian? I was going to be like relationships or something about connectedness or...
1: Definitely as a firm, one of our four values yeah. is ships over actions, relationships over transactions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, clearly, and I see that in you. What would our listeners or people in general be most surprised to learn about you?
1: I've got a number of things that I can't talk about on this podcast. Come on,
0: you said. You'd be transparent and open.
1: Um, okay, I said I'd be transparent. One of my first bosses was arrested and accused of conspiring to murder his wife. Really? It was It was incredible. I was twenty three years old, and it happened right in front of me, and it was uh, my head. Did he head... get arrested? He got arrested, and he went to jail.
0: You didn't have to, like, be involved in anything? No. Okay, good. All right, awesome. So I know um, I'm I know that you and Stacey know that David and I moved here from New York, and um, I would say that when I first met you, I was, like, felt a little bit, even though I'm from Seattle, like, ah, uh, like a home feeling, like this guy's a New Yorker through and through, um. How how does that define you, like being a New Yorker?
1: I think when you grow up in New York, you feel like there's nothing you can't handle.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I would say the intensity of New York blew me away until I went to Shanghai and felt like Shanghai was the next order of intensity. But um, I think if you grow up in New York, you also tend to have a lower quality of life expectation in terms of your day-to-day existence. Yeah. And uh, Stacy and I moved here in 1998. And we've consciously decided to raise our family here and um, have our kids grow up here. And uh, it's that, um, I don't know, this has been a wonderful place to raise, uh, raise a family.
0: Yeah. And so your, your family, your parents, are from New York. And your dad was a lawyer?
1: My father was a lawyer in the era of consigliere lawyers. He would start with the corporate law, and then he would become an estate lawyer as his clients oh, got older. Ah. Much less specialization in those days when my dad was a lawyer.
0: And was it one of those things where you like went to work with your dad and kind of wanted to be like him when you grew up?
1: Or I worked at his law firm over the summer physically delivering papers to the courthouse. Yeah. And I remember his office was on 42nd and Lexington. And I used to take the Lexington Avenue line, had to wear a suit and physically in my teens yeah. and physically deliver papers to the courthouse, the 6th train down Lexington yeah, Avenue. Yeah, I was
0: about to say, was it the 6th train? I yeah. took that train. It's yeah. a busy one. Yeah. Um, I've seen you outside of work and you seem like a very engaged and kind of um, deliberate father. Was he like that also?
1: Um, he was older. He was 47 when he had me.
0: Oh, yeah, that is. Old. That's like my, that's my age.
1: And, uh, you're not 47.
0: Yes, I am.
1: Oh, my God. Yes, um,
0: I Legit. Is that young or old?
1: I think that's, uh, you look much younger.
0: Well, that's sweet. I'm getting um, my hair colored tomorrow, so.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, that's one of our businesses. Oh, I was about to say. Women's hair coloring.
0: Yes, I need to talk to you about that one because I've not tried it because I don't have confidence in my ability to do it, but we need to talk about that. It's
1: pretty foolproof. Madison Reed.
0: Okay, we can talk about Madison Reed. All the investments that you make, I always want to kind of dig deep and understand how you knew that that was going to be a good one, which we'll we'll get to. We don't but, know. Um, yeah, but like That's I feel the like you got this weird – I know, but you specifically – I mean, I'm probably not thinking of the ones that were flops, but the ones that have been successful, like Allbirds, is not one that I probably would have put money behind yep. originally. And now it's like everywhere. It's like the hipster, cool – all ages wear Alberts. You're not wearing one. I, I'm not into those shoes. Okay. But when I go to Europe, I might get some because they look very comfortable.
1: Great travel shoes.
0: They're great travel shoes. And you're wearing them all the time.
1: I do. I've yeah. given up leather shoes.
0: Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. It's better for the environment, too.
1: I had a fun time. I ran into... Uh, I was at the Duke-North Carolina game, basketball game Are we we there we
0: talking about Duke already?
1: We're already talking about Duke. <laughs> and i um, at this reception before the game, and who do I see but... Uh, Barack Obama, wearing the oh. exact same black on black Allbirds wool yes. shoes that I had on.
0: Did you take a picture? Uh,
1: we did take a picture. And uh, and his one of his guys prepped him. So he came up to me and he said, oh, you're Dan, the Allbirds guy, right? And I was like.
0: <laughs> you're like, holy shit, this is Barack Obama. Yeah. That's amazing. It was
1: fun. So we gave him some embroidered 44 shoes.
0: You just like sent them to him later?
1: Yeah, the company did.
0: Oh, that's nice. I know. I just listened to their um, How I Built This podcast. I know that you went to Horace Mann in New York. I did. Awesome, very competitive private school. Um, Are you still friends with all those friends?
1: Yeah. Still know a lot of Horace Mann.
0: I feel like when I lived in New York, I kept meeting very successful people that all went to Horace Mann. There's something that they're doing, like something in the water there. I know it's a great school, competitive and strong academically, but it seems like it almost like prepared people to be leaders. Um, you seem more into Duke than Horace Mann. I never hear you talk about Horace Mann.
1: Well, Horace Mann had a terrible set of well, circumstances around some of the predator issues. Yes. A- and, that was
0: after you were there, though.
1: Oh, it was during while I was there, but then the issues came to light
0: oh. well after. Oh, that was overlapping when we were there.
1: But I didn't really think the school handled it in a way that it made me proud.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I read all of that, and that was a little bit disturbing for sure. So you're friends with those people. What would they have thought maybe you were going to be when you grew up if you, if I had met them in, like, fifth grade? Like, or, tell me about Danny Boy.
1: I don't remember uh, fifth grade, and in fifth grade I was called Danny. In seventh grade I had a professor at Horseman named Nathaniel F. Glidden III, yeah. and Nat Glidden said, your name rhymes. So he said, "Why do you call yourself Danny? It should be Dan Levitan." Oh, and ever since then, I've
0: never thought about it like that. I've been that way. It actually sounds better now that you say it like that. And so, um, were there teachers at Horace Mann along the way that inspired you that made you?
1: Yeah, not Glidden, not uh, Nathaniel uh, Glidden. He um, taught a course called General Language, and we took spattering of five different languages. But he had tremendous, tremendous um, traditions, and he was known throughout the school. He appointed someone a dictionary catcher, and he would physically throw the dictionary across the room from his desk to wherever the dictionary catcher was, and he would ask people, ask the dictionary catcher to look up the words. Every day we had That's a word.
0: amazing.
1: Zebeck. Uh, Stridgel. I mean, just words that I still these words today? still remember. That's um,
0: an inc- I wish the kids today. I've not. I don't hear about teachers like that these
1: and, days. And to the smartest kid, he gave sleeping privileges. <laughs> and so during you could, class, yeah, you could sleep in the class.
0: Did you ever get to sleep?
1: No, I was not. You were not
0: the smartest. I was
1: not the smartest uh, in the class at man
0: Was it um, kind of a cutthroat, competitive, academic um, environment there?
1: You know, when you grow up in New York and there's a set of standards that mm-hmm. are just what everybody does or so you think, Yeah. then you don't think of it as cutthroat.
0: Yeah. No, it felt normal when I was living there and I had kids and I'd have my colleague slash assistant go and like sleep to try to get my kid into like some stupid class that I'd pay $40 an hour for that I thought was normal at the time. Yeah. You start to kind of subscribe to it all.
1: There's a lot of zero-sum game mentality in yeah.
0: Manhattan. Yeah. 100%. But, but I still love it. And so you talked about your mom giving you this grit. Was she also giving you the message of you can do anything? Or you know how today there's a lot of schools that are like, everybody's a winner. Was she like that or more like, hey, there's no there's no second place?
1: I think when you are young in your life, there's an imprinting that your parents can give you in certain values. And in my mom's case, I remember I was editor of the yearbook. And... We were delayed by the printing company of the yearbook, and it wasn't going to be ready for graduation. And I remember in the spring of my senior year uh, telling my mother that the yearbook wasn't going to be ready. And she said, what do you mean? And I said...
0: That's unacceptable. That's
1: unacceptable. And so she said, I'm going to call the head of the company. And I was embarrassed, and... She called the head of the company. I think the company was named Jostens. And she, she got referred from the CEO's office to the head of, uh, you know, the printing or whatever. And sure enough, our yearbook came the day before graduation.
0: Go mom. Was she working?
1: Uh, she tried to work. Yeah. Back then, people were discouraged from working. And she was incredibly...
0: She sounds pretty resourceful.
1: She was incredibly resourceful and smart. But when she was out of the workforce for years and then tried to come back in her 50s, I think it was hard. And one of my um, intentional things with my kids is making sure that... A, they got the lesson that you can do anything you put your mind to, Mm -hmm. um, and then B, just the importance of staying sharp. And, you know, Mm -hmm. my wife has always worked, and she's got an art gallery, and I think that's been great for our relationship and a great role model for our kids to see a working uh, woman who can toggle between being a mom and uh, having a successful career that she
0: loves. Well, thank you. As a working mom, I appreciate that because I agree. Sometimes it can be um, challenging to try to do both. But I agree. When I am having those difficult days, I remind myself I'm setting a good example for the kids. Um, And I also see with Maveron that you've been really intentional about um, having a balanced workforce and also some of your portfolio companies. I think it's great, the role that you've taken with women.
1: Being a consumer-facing business, many of the companies that we invest in, the majority of the customers are female. And so we um, have had a female partner since 2000, and uh, actually, kind of a surprise to us, in 2018, uh, 68% of the investments that we made were at least one female founder. Um, And that was frankly a bottom-up, it wasn't a Mm -hmm. top-down. I think we're on the cusp of many companies very different than the past uh, being led by women mm-hmm. that are going to be successful in unicorns and things like that.
0: What do you mean when you say bottom-up? It wasn't like you were saying, hey, we've got to pass up on a male.
1: It just turned out to be that way. Yeah. We weren't intentional right. to go back female entrepreneurs. We wanted to back the best entrepreneurs we could back. And today our investment team has
0: three women and three men. Also, your investment team. You know that they're that they understand probably the mindset of women too. That they are women well, um, helps.
1: We've hired uh, we haven't hired a male on the investment team in years, um, but uh, frankly, it's just a function of finding the people that uh, we think are the best investors and the best team members.
0: Yeah, I have so many Maveron questions, but um, I'm really curious because I read also that you worked at Barney's. I did. I'm a Barney shopper. Well, wow. good Is diligence. Your whole career has been on the consumer facing side. Or were you interested in fashion? Was that just a random job that you took, or were you was that a pl- you know, place to kind of learn about consumer behavior?
1: Candidly, when I was growing up in at Duke and in New York, uh summer jobs were not as intentional. Yeah. And oh, I get it. career setting up as they are now. Yeah. And I got a job at Barney's because That was the job. I could make a lot of money quickly.
0: Were you good at it? Uh,
1: I was pretty good at it. You know, I'd work for eight weeks and I'd work for uh, eight, nine, 10 hours a day. It was really tiring work. And many of the, uh, it was June and July. And many of the uh, times Barney's had sales and it was just crazy. Chaos. Yeah. Chaos. And I really learned that I never wanted to punch a clock. Did did
0: you ever work in a restaurant? I have never worked in a restaurant. I've worked retail like forever and I'm a big believer. I am actually very drawn to employees who have worked retail or worked in a restaurant because it is a different type of work. It's intense and it's, you know, customer facing and you have to think on your feet and be and have like physical energy.
1: And I think that people really learn how to deal with customers both good and bad oh yeah my daughter had a summer job uh at starbucks oh, um, like barista yeah
0: oh i would suck at that job that's yeah. a hard job
1: and she was blown away by the uh, lack of empathy that many customers have. oh
0: yeah they're just well, especially starbucks people are like can i get a half calf decap la 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 i mean they're so specific yeah you know half a splenda I, I just think it's and then they get pissed when it's not exactly so
1: Want it exactly the way I want it.
0: Yeah. but I mean, which is a great thing about Starbucks, but it's also like, I don't like seeing that with with customers from there either. So um, I know Duke is like your thing. We already talked about Duke just a little bit. And Coach K is one of your, would you call him a mentor?
1: I would. I would call him one of my four
0: mentors. How'd you choose Duke?
1: I didn't get into Princeton.
0: Princeton is where you wanted to go? Yeah. But I feel like you're more of a Duke guy than a Princeton guy. I mean, everything happens for a reason, right? Oh, Looking back on it, I think
1: having uh, high schoolers, I totally empathize with the challenges that they go through. Mm -hmm. And I look back on it and I was crushed because of Horace Mann and because of the peer pressure Mm -hmm. that I didn't get into uh, Princeton. Mm -hmm. And it, it feels so frivolous and silly now. But back then it was...
0: Why was Princeton? Why not Harvard?
1: Uh, I got turned down by Harvard as well.
0: So, but I'm saying, like, why was Princeton the school?
1: I decided I wanted to go to Princeton for whatever reason. But I framed my Harvard rejection letter, and then when I graduated Duke, I had the good fortune of only Uh, applying to one business school and getting into Harvard.
0: Yes. And I've met so many people um, that went to Harvard Business School that absolutely loved it. Um, I know you talk about Duke a lot. Why isn't HBS equally up there in your kind of – Conversation?
1: Duke is more aligned with my personality.
0: In what way? How would you describe that?
1: Duke is a very aspirational school. They take nothing for granted and they're always striving to get better. And when I was at HBS, it was kind of.
0: Because an institution.
1: Yeah. We're Harvard this is Business the way it School. Is. Yeah. And I, one of the many lessons I've learned over time is um, it doesn't matter. Uh, where you went to school. In fact, I tell Harvard graduates now you have to work harder because people have this image of if you're a, yeah. if you're a Harvard MBA. Yeah. And so um, I th- just think Duke's um, Duke's a younger school. Uh, the current Duke was really created in the 1920s, mm-hmm. and uh, it challenges itself to uh, get better in everything it does. And I just have. You know, I think you don't really think about the lifelong connectivity to your schools. Mm -hmm. You think about a four year experience or in business school, a two year experience. What I try to encourage people to think about is if you really are privileged enough to be at a great place, that has a long term impact on your friendships and getting back there Mm -hmm. on some basis. And hopefully, the pursuits of that school are of interest to you.
0: Yeah. When you say that Coach K is one of your four mentors, is that a formal thing that he asked or you asked in a conversation or just someone that you respect?
1: Well, I was 35 years old and um, a politician who kind of redefined the rules of fundraising in the 1980s, a guy named Tony Coelho, who was the Speaker of the House, he said to me once, who are your mentors? And I'm 35 I don't have any mentors. You are in investment
0: banking at the time?
1: Yeah. I don't need mentors. What are you talking about? And I thought it was a sign of weakness. And he described to me very carefully how mentors have propelled his career, how he's learned all, th- all these things from these mentors and kind of challenged me to wake up. And ever since then, I have and I try – I've been fortunate to intersect with people in a serendipitous way whose values I admire and who I've kind of had the good fortune to kind of cultivate relationships with. Mm-hmm.
0: And, but and, is that a formal convers- – I'm just curious because I have a woman in New York. She's badass. She probably, I think she's probably 63 right now. And she's who I would call my mentor, but it's not a formal – she's somebody I look up to and that I would call for things – but I've never had a formal – I'm interested in it.
1: I think many people like it when a mentee says, will you be my mentor? But, for instance, uh, we came out with our values piece last week about Mavron's values. I
0: thought I got the newsletter. I and, loved it. I have to. I literally went to my company. And I was like, I think it's time to re- scrub our values a little. I loved it. I loved – what's the not normal?
1: Unapologetically yeah, not normal. Yeah, I need
0: to know more about that. What do you mean?
1: Well, so yeah. – um, I actually, um, talking about Coach K, I sent him a text last week saying, here are our values. And I wanted to thank you because non-normal comes from you. Um, And so every opportunity I have to learn something from one of my mentors or people in general, I try to go back to them and thank them for the learning as a reinforcement opportunity so that they understand that
0: you're um, paying attention.
1: I'm paying attention yeah. and they're helping.
0: That's really, really cool. Um
1: but the unapologetically non normal comes from um about four or five years ago Duke was playing a basketball game in December. It was during exam time. Uh it was the first game back after exams. And the team played fine. We won by 15 points, but we didn't play as good as we can could that year. And so the reporters in the post-game press conference were talking to Coach K about it. And Coach K said, we played like we were normal today. And, of course, that's the way kids are. They're freshmen. They haven't taken—they just got off exams. Planning it's it's their first game back. Um, and he said, you know— uh, For normal uh, players, um, that was fine. But if we're going to win a championship, we have to be non-normal. And so I'm not happy about how it went tonight. And... uh,
0: So that resonated for you? It
1: was year-end, and we were going through at Mavron some year-end stuff, and I played the tape Mm -hmm. to my team. And they heard him say, you know, And everyone then gravitated toward the fact that, you know, there's 3,500, 4,000 venture capital investments every year. And in the consumer world, five are going to matter. And so we need to find the non-normal CEOs, founders, the extraordinary ones, and we need to be non-normal VCs. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we embraced unapologetically non-normal.
0: I like it. And so the values, when I read them, I did read them from the perspective of these are our values as it relates to us as investors. But do you have values that are your corporate culture values for what it's like to be an employee at Mavron, or like the type of employee or person that you look for when you hire for yourself? Um,
1: we've talked about that. We haven't codified it as much as the the four values. mm mm-hmm. um, I think, um, you know, either you're adding to a team or you're detracting. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone knows who's adding. Yeah. And uh, one of the many things that Coach K asked me, he and I had a one-on-one in 2000. And we were together for a while. And one of the things he said is, so do you love your team, Dan? And at the time, I was not focused on that question Mm. at all.
0: You are externally focused.
1: I was externally focused, and I thought that VCs didn't love their team. Mm. And I thought that that didn't matter. And I learned that he understood me, and he understood our business more than I expected. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. I think that's a key for any great team, that uh, individuals can accomplish only so much. And uh, in our business, there's... A lot of um, teamwork and collaboration that I think makes us better.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you were working in investment banking, how did you get the Starbucks deal? Did that come to you, and were you the lead banker on it?
1: What happened was that uh, one of my new partners came to me one day, and he said, there's this coffee company out in Seattle. I was You
0: like Alaska? Uh,
1: <laughs> I was actually working in L.A. at the time, and he said, let's meet in uh, – Seattle. And uh, I said, you know, coffee, it couldn't be a growth business because yeah. those days it was Maxwell House and Sanka.
0: Yeah. And was there Dunkin' Donuts?
1: Uh, there was Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. Um, but it was a donut company. It wasn't right. really a coffee company. Yes. And um, so he and I met in Seattle. I remember driving in from the airport to a hotel downtown and uh, I asked the cab driver, I hear there's a lot of coffee places in this town. And, you know, there might have been five Starbucks in Seattle as opposed to 50 now. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, yeah, there's a lot of coffee places, but I go to Starbucks. And I thought that was interesting. Then Mm -hmm. I checked into my hotel. And after the woman gave me the key to the room, I said, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee tomorrow. Where should I go? Oh, there's a lot of places, but I'd go to Starbucks, and here's where it is. And so I was two for two. It was really interesting. And I went to the uh, Starbucks kiosk in City Center. Um,
0: That was there back then? That's where my office is? Yeah. There's two, there's three. Sorry, City Center has three Starbucks.
1: And I just sat there and watched people wait online for coffee. And then we went over to Howard's office. And uh, it was a guy named Bob Israel and I. And uh, it was an hour and a half meeting, and Howard did all the talking. And... If you're an investment banker and you don't talk, you don't think you have a good meeting because you gotta sell and you can't sell with your mouth shut. And um Howard was telling us about his people, about the opportunity, da 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 and um I um we were leaving and uh walked down this long hallway, he stops in the middle of the hallway. And he says, do you know what the problem with investment bankers are? And I said, no, what's the problem? And he says, there are no menches in investment banking. And for that one moment, we looked each other in the eye, and I knew exactly what he was telling me. Yeah. And he was asking.
0: Are you a mensch? Are you a mensch? Yeah.
1: And that was the end of August 1991, and uh, the beauty contest where he Picked six investment banks, was in April of the beginning of April of ninety two, mm-hmm. and uh, and
0: who else was courting him? All sorts of the big names.
1: Uh, Goldman Sachs, Alex Brown, J.P. Morgan, no oh. Montgomery Securities. Oh God, Robertsonquist, uh, Robertsonquist, and Robertson and and Stevens. And Roberts and Stevens. Oh,
0: all San Francisco based. Those are all my clients in San Francisco. That's so yeah, funny,
1: yeah. And so. Uh, we pitched, and I remember our chairman came in from New York, and uh, it was a, a really tense, tense, tense uh, moment for me because I had put so much emotion into this knowing that I was at a firm that wasn't particularly qualified compared to some of these big names. Um, and uh, the next day, I saw him outside what's now the Fairmont Hotel, and uh he looked at me and I said, how do we do? And he kind of hesitated. And uh, I got the sense he felt we did okay, not great. And also that there were other really, really good firms. And so I kind of looked him in the eye once again and I said, you know, if you if you put me uh, on the cover and do the deal 50-50 with whoever you and one other firm, I will become your investment banker and there was that moment of silence again where he kind of looked through me into can i really count on that and uh
0: what does it mean when you say i'll be your investment banker i'll be your like cons- i'll have your back
1: i'll be your consigliere yeah i'll be the go to resource for you to rely on mhm and um i remember it was 1992 i was in minneapolis um because duke was in the final four <laughs> and uh we talked uh, he was going to make the decision on a monday and he and we talked on uh, um saturday and i said you know this is killing me and he said uh, i got to call some other people first and then i'll call you monday morning and so i went to dinner with my friends on saturday night and i said to my friends do i have the business or don't i have the business because he needs to talk to other people and as it turned out he wanted to tell the people who lost before he wanted to tell the people who won and so that monday he told me and then duke won our second national championship that day
0: best day of your life uh well i don't
1: know mm-hmm. my marriage was okay, my sorry, best day oh, in my life.
0: that's so funny or your children being born
1: um but uh anyhow so um we uh just were fortunate and then you know it was kind of an incredibly fun ride uh, to watch Starbucks just become, you know, today they're in 80 countries. Uh, they were in two then. Uh, maybe they had 30, 40 stores when I first uh, got there, and today 30,000. Um, and it's a little north of $100 billion market cap. it's unbelievable. The company was worth $80 million, uh when I first met it. And the resilience, the grit... The buy in that Howard led a team uh, that was just uh, kind of an extraordinary thing to see. Yeah. And uh, one of the things about Mavron is when we started, everyone said, Well, you'll never do better than Starbucks. And I kind of said, I don't want to do Mavron if I can't do better than Starbucks. And thankfully, we've had some wins that have both happened faster and higher times money uh, than. Yeah. and I had at Starbucks.
0: Yeah. Well, I know that you moved out here um, to start Maveron and to do it with him, but was it a chicken and egg thing like you said to him, hey, I'm out, I want to come out west? Or did he say, hey, I've got this opportunity? Or how did that conversation start?
1: We met in 91, company went public in 92, and he started sending me around the country in 92, 93, 94, first for Starbucks and then for opportunities that he had seen. And, um... Then in '94, he said, "Why don't you come out and be the CFO of Starbucks?" Mm-hmm. And I would have been a terrible uh, CFO uh, to be the CFO of a public company. You got to be kind of very detailed mm-hmm. and anal. And
0: um, you're more of a visionary than an operator. It seems. Yes. Yeah.
1: And so the then CFO was becoming uh, the president. A guy named Orrin Smith. May yes. or, May Orrin rest in peace. Wonderful man. Warren miraculously convinced both Howard and I in an incredibly tactful way that that was a dumb idea. And um, Howard always kept saying, you know, let's go into business together. And I never really opened myself up to that possibility. One of the things I'd say to your listeners is we put blinders on ourselves early in our career and mid-career. And when opportunities are presented to yourself, you got to have the peripheral vision to really think about it. And I didn't. And uh, i stayed in my narrow tunnel vision investment
0: banking. Well, you were kicking ass as uh, an investment banker. Um, Probably miserable, but like doing great.
1: And it wasn't until I quit investment banking and took the summer off, um, but was working on a deal.
0: Yeah. And I read that you left a lot of money on the table. Eh.
1: Eh. Um, and that deal fell through. And I remember it vividly. It was August 31st, uh, 1997. And I just kind of ha- I put the phone down, hearing I lost this deal I was chasing as a principal. And um, I had this epiphany on moving to Seattle. And I went home that night. Uh, my house was in Connecticut. I slept on it. And I called Howard the next day and I said, I'm coming. And he said, Great. And he was totally surprised.
0: And you're like, What are we going to do?
1: Uh, well, so that was September 1st of 97. I moved in December of 97 and uh, Howard um, lent me, he had a, a house he had bought that he wasn't using. So I was in this empty house and it was pouring rain for like weeks when I first Heck got to- Welcome
0: to, to Seattle. Uh,
1: welcome to Seattle. And then uh, I met him uh, at Starbucks on the first work day of 1998. And he gave me a black Yankees cap and a umbrella, and he said, "Welcome to Seattle." And I said, "Okay, Howard. Uh, what do you think we should do?" And he said, "You're the one who moved here. Figure it out." And um, he said, "You know, what are you going to pay yourself?" And I said, "I don't. I'm not going to pay myself anything. We don't have a business." And he insisted on getting me to pay myself. And he put a bunch of money in a bank account, and he said, "Pay me back whenever." Uh, we figure out what we're going to do. And that's how our partnership started. And that kind of unconditional support and that commitment uh, to me is something I've never forgotten. And so the two lessons I take from it first is be aware of opportunities that you might not be thinking of. Like part of coming out here was a bet on Howard, and a bet that Starbucks would be what it became. Um, and then the other thing is work with people who you really love, mm-hmm. uh, who you trust, who make you better, and who have a sense of values that are aligned with yours. And uh, I think, uh, thankfully, for the last 21 and a half years or 22 years, I've been blessed with that.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And did you move out here with Stacy, or you hadn't met her yet?
1: Great story. Um, How'd you meet Stacy? I was at a wedding.
0: I love Stacey.
1: Uh oh She's good. Cool. I love Stacy too. I was at a wedding at the Pierre Hotel. Nice. And uh it was a Sunday night wedding. And uh we sat next to each other and uh we started talking and she said and at the time I thought I was a very unattractive candidate for marriage. Um I had given up my New York apartment. I was moving to Seattle, Washington.
0: Oh, you had already decided. I had
1: committed to move in September, as I said, September 1st or uh and so this was 6 weeks later.
0: Wait, okay, so you met her in like October.
1: October okay. 19th, okay. 1997, at okay.
0: about 9:05 p.m. Not that you were paying attention. Yeah. Did you know that you were like this is my girl?
1: So, uh 10 minutes into the conversation, 20 minutes in before I tell her I'm moving to Seattle. She says, I've always thought I would move out West and live in some place where I could see the mountains. And she had never been to Seattle then. Never.
0: And she didn't know that you were moving there? No. What?
1: And so it evolved pretty quickly. And uh, we went away to the Caribbean that um, December, and I fell in love. And then she came out with you to Seattle? In the ultimate power move, she moved out to Seattle without a ring on our finger in like April, May, and uh, we got engaged in Israel that August.
0: Wow. I love that story. That's a great story. Uh, Have you been to Israel a lot?
1: I have been to Israel a lot.
0: Yeah. I love it there.
1: Wonderful country.
0: Beautiful. And beautiful people, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love that story. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. And so it sounds like to me, and I did a lot of recruiting for investment banking, it's crazy hours, like impossible to maintain any sort of normalcy. Did you think, like, I have to leave all of this in order to kind of feel more balanced? Yes. Could you have stayed in New York and been a startup guy, like an operator? Was that ever, did that ever cross your mind?
1: When I was leaving investment banking, it was the 90s, the late 90s. -hmm. And there was no VC community In New York,
0: yeah, I guess you're right.
1: It was well. I should I shouldn't say there was that.
0: a little VC community.
1: There were very unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Um, there was not the incredible. I mean, over the last five to ten years, the number of super high quality founders mm-hmm. and the culture of building companies that endure. Uh, that's pretty new.
0: Yeah, but um, investment banking in the 90s in New York was like it. Yeah. That's that's the shit right there.
1: It was the it, and yes. what I realized was two things. Uh, one, um, I couldn't have a family life that I aspired to mm-hmm. being an investment banker, just not compatible with yeah. the job.
0: Yeah, you're like sleeping under your desk.
1: And two, I kind of realized that unless I did something radical by 40 – I might be an investment banker at fifty. Uh, I quit and uh, spent the summer uh, looking at different things and went, climbed
0: Kilimanjaro. Uh,
1: in the spring, I climbed Kilimanjaro with my brothers.
0: That's super
1: badass. Uh, it was fun. Like,
0: um, how did you just? Were you like already in shape, or was that one of these like, I'm doing that, and I'm going to start now getting in shape?
1: Kilimanjaro is actually easier than Rainier. Really? Yeah.
0: I, I always think of it just because it's like. Sounds so.
1: I've done Rainier twice, and um, Kilimanjaro, you have porters and you have day packs, and you're going up 1,500 to 2,000 vertical feet a day. Oh, yeah, it's not that. Uh, It's not that much, but Rainier, you're uh, kind of, you got 50 pounds on your back, you're waking up in the middle of the night. Yes. The crevasses are somewhat intense. Yes. Um. I would say the first time I climbed Rainier, I thought it was the hardest thing I ever did. And then I trained. And then bizarrely, the second time I climbed Rainier, it was kind of like, could this be the summit? And I'm not tired at all because it was in yeah. you know, a whiteout.
0: Yeah. Are you a, are you a person who needs like physical goals? Yes. So what's your goal right now?
1: Uh, I'm waiting for one. <laughs> I keep being like
0: body fat percentage. <laughs> That's not very helpful for me.
1: Um, but I've
0: been like that. Like I signed up for a triathlon thinking if I just sign up, then I'll do it.
1: What's your body fat percentage?
0: Uh, right now, it's really high. It's like twenty six percent or something. I want to get yeah. below twenty.
1: Part of it is your your DNA. I know. Um, I did
0: the I did the um what's it called
1: Twenty three andme Me. I did
0: Twenty three andme Me, and I also did um Clayton's Arival. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you've got two out of three of the obesity genes. Yeah. So yeah, they said I have to do like two hours of cardio a day or something, which is not realistic. But sometimes I do do well with a goal. Uh, so
1: I think goals are great. Yeah,
0: do you set them for yourself um at work?
1: 100%?
0: Like every day, every month, once a year?
1: Um well, whenever we raise a fund, we start with what the goal is.
0: As far as uh, the size of the fund?
1: No, as far as what we think the performance can be.
0: So tell tell if somebody's not in venture, tell me what that means.
1: Um right now it's very easy or easy to raise money. And I think it's hard to make great returns Mm -hmm. because there's too few great entrepreneurs with great ideas Mm -hmm. and there's too much money sloshing around. Right. So before we raise, we kind of decide how much do we want to raise and what do we think is a noble target for the returns.
0: And so what is that?
1: Um, in our case, we try to get 3X or better. Mm-hmm. And part of that is a function of the macro environment you're in, mm-hmm. but part of it is a function of the size of the fund. Mm-hmm. Because as this uh, one of the smartest investors uh, that I've ever known is this guy named David Swenson who runs the Yale Endowment. And years ago, David said to me when he was one of our investors, size is the enemy of performance mm. in venture capital. And it's just much easier to get acceptable returns on a smaller fund rather than a bigger fund Mm -hmm. because the number of killer great investments doesn't scale with the size of the fund.
0: What would the diligence process be like for you if I brought you a deal that you're like, hmm?
1: The older I've gotten and the more I've done this, uh, the more I've learned to listen to my partners and appreciate their perspectives. We rarely have everyone saying, let's do this, and there's nothing to worry about. We frequently have a split, and we frequently have things that we observe in others' deals that are watch-outs. And so our the way our partnership works is we surface everything, we seek out everyone weighing in, and hopefully each person that's leading an investment has a plan on what we see as the weakness or the vulnerability and how are we going to help the entrepreneur Mm -hmm. uh, manage that. Um, But ultimately, it does come down to a gut Um, and, in reality, I think about three broad things. First, the people and particularly the founders. Uh, Second, the size of the prize.
0: Um, Of the addressable market.
1: Of the addressable oh, yeah. market and if it works. yeah, uh, It's easy when you start in VC to ask what could go wrong. Mm-hmm. What we've learned is we need to ask what can go right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if what can go right can deliver a big enough return. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is, is it an enduring uh, product, a differentiated product, something that we think can separate itself from the competition.
0: Mm-hmm. I think of questions as I'm going. One, if you have someone like a Mark Baden from Zulily, mm-hmm. um, or I'm just trying to think of some of your investments that you're like, this person I would bet on again. Do you ever try to uh, get them to kind of have a second run and come up with some idea, or do they those things have to happen before presenting them to you? Do you ever birth the idea?
1: Um... Occasionally we birth the ideas, but being able to invest in repeat entrepreneurs is one of the significant advantages.
0: For sure. You um, know what you're getting.
1: Yeah. Uh, and they know what they're getting.
0: Right. And so, what would your entrepreneurs say about you?
1: I don't know. You should ask them. Um, you know, I mean, each relationship is different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Oldbirds guys are first time CEOs, mm-hmm. they're younger. Uh, Mark and Daryl Cavins were around the block and had scaled uh, Blue Nile. So we have to be different for them than if you're in your mid to late 30s and you're a first-time entrepreneur, that's very different than if you're 24 Mm -hmm. and a first-time entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And so I think the key for us is trying to be malleable and giving the entrepreneur and the board uh everything we can in terms of resources help advice uh to help them scale
0: mm-hmm and how how are you different today versus if I had met you when you first started mavron
1: oof it's, it's embarrassing <laughs> to think Wait. what I didn't know
0: what really oh yeah, did you have that? I better fake it till I make it not show any vulnerability
1: well, at the beginning. You believe if you can raise the money.
0: The rest will work itself out.
1: You should be a good investor. Yeah. And there's little correlation between your ability to raise money and your ability over long periods of time to replicably make money.
0: Yes. And, and are, which, which of your investments has surprised you the most? Either good or bad.
1: Well, I mean, when something goes from obscurity to ubiquity really fast, um, it's hard to say that I'm not surprised. Yeah. So, you know.
0: Like your, your dictionary guy has come in handy. You're using very nice big words.
1: When, when <laughs> something like eBay goes from, you know, no one knew it to mm-hmm. everyone's talking about it. Yeah. Or Allbirds uh, or Zululi. I mean, these are like incredible rides. And um, getting back to my dad, he was kind of the partner, the consigliere to his clients. And I stumbled into uh, a profession that has, I think, a far better business model than law um, in that our product is money. But in reality, what we are trying to do is be a impactful service organization to the entrepreneurs we back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of our other values we came up with is ships over actions relationships over transactions and try to hold ourselves accountable to recognizing that um, it's really the entrepreneurs that create all the value. And we want to nurture those relationships and provide um, whatever it is we can. I mean, on uh, last night I was at uh, Canlis for uh, the 50th birthday of uh, somebody we backed 13 years ago. I'm still on his board. The company's been public, we still own the stock. Um when you're blessed enough to get both financial returns and psychological returns, this business is just an incredible.
0: It seems like the most fun ever, I have to say. Yeah. It seems really fun. And I also think that there are correlations to recruiting, like it's it's the people connecting people, but it's different when you're putting your own capital behind. Someone, I would think that when you add that component, in, it can add some complication as yeah. far as, hey, let's just kind of talk about the elephant in the room. You're losing us money, or let's raise a glass. You made us a lot of money.
1: Yeah, this is great. No, but you have to have the maturity. You ask me how I'm different. I don't react to the highs and the lows as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. It can be a roller coaster, both in terms of the individual company ride, but more importantly, or equally importantly, the macro environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in 99, 98, we were brilliant investing in consumer businesses. In 2001, 2002, everyone thought we were dumb. Yeah. In oh seven, we were back brilliant. And then in
0: 09, o- like,
1: some of the institutional found, uh, endowments and foundations that we had, and they said, there's no good investments here. Yeah. Why don't you, sh- you know, stop investing? And actually, when everyone else is fearful is the greatest time to invest. And in. if you look at that 09 class of companies, we had Zulily, Uber. I mean, uh, these Good. great companies were yeah. created then.
0: Yeah. Did you ever feel like kind of a rock bottom feeling? Or was it all relative? Because you're like, hey, it's it's a numbers game. And some, you win some, you lose some.
1: Every single person that I know that's been successful over long periods of time Absolutely faced the pre- precipice. I mean, Krzyzewski, um left basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, what
0: was that for you, though?
1: Uh, for me, it was 2009, 2009 when everyone said, oh, my God, uh, you shouldn't be investing in consumer businesses. Mm-hmm. And we shrunk the size of our fund. We changed our strategy. We went, went earlier. And we tried to say, what could we do as well or better than anyone? And we got much more humble. We got much more focused. And we clearly asked ourselves, how can we differentiate ourselves?
0: You have a different team of people now. Because I yep. remember that was right when I first moved back from New York. And it was some people who are no longer even in the industry. Yep. Um, awesome people, but, but just different crew.
1: Um, being a great venture investor is hard. Yeah. And uh, just because you're a good operator or just because you're a good this or that doesn't necessarily mean you have the combination of skills to both be a great uh, sourcer, mm-hmm. a great picker, and a great partner. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, challenging to build and nurture a partnership that's highly functional.
0: Right. And when you um, first started Versus Now, what were you fueled by?
1: I think the biggest return for me has been uh, being partnered with great entrepreneurs and seeing companies that no one knows become household Mm -hmm. uh, words. I mean, uh, I've been fortunate that it's happened to me a number of times and uh, people don't forget it. I was back last week in New York at the NBA draft and I'm with a friend of mine who told me how I told them about Starbucks in 1992 at the IPO. And, uh, you know, they said, Starbucks, it's coffee, yeah. there's no barrier. Yeah. Um. So I think uh, what I've done it for, what I get the most juice out of is being part of those, you know, rides, as I said. Mm-hmm. And particularly if you really believe in the core values of the company. I think... Uh, you know one of the other thing that's happened in the last 5 10 years is society's is really grappling with where where does goodness come from and uh you know i've started asking teenagers and 20 somethings capitalism or socialism and a surprising amount of people uh one in two say uh socialism and they feel that particularly since 2008, uh, capitalism excesses have let them down. And I think what I learned from Starbucks and one of the themes for our investments is finding businesses that have profit plus purpose and finding incredibly engaged employee bases and if you get the right psychological contract between the company and its employees, then the brand, which is built from the inside out, mm-hmm. is built by the employees. And I think powerful things can happen. And that's why a company like Allbirds is where it is today because
0: – How did, how did that deal come to be? I'm curious about that whole process. Like you probably have memories or moments of, oh, I remember getting that call or I remember who handed me that deal.
1: We had looked at the seed and it was tough to invest in a pre-launch shoe company. Mm -hmm. And I remember very clearly I was having breakfast in Soho with one of the co-CEOs of Warby Parker uh, named Dave Gilboa. And I said, Dave, what do I have to be looking at? And he said, Albert's. And uh, so... Uh, my partner and I uh, focused on it again, and um, in a pretty quick order, met uh, Joey and Tim. Uh, thought they were non-normal, uh, very unusual team. Athletes. Uh, athletes, um, and a very complementary set of skill sets. Uh, you know, I think as we look at founding teams, um, it's hard for one person to have it all. And there's a lot of characteristics that companies need to differentiate and sustain. Mm -hmm. And um, so I just, it was so exciting just every meeting uh, coming away from it saying, wow, you know, maybe there's something here.
0: And were they comparing you to others? Yeah. And uh, so what do you, what do you, what words are you using when you're trying to say, hey, pick us? You're letting them know like we're going to have your back through the good and the bad or?
1: Well, we live in a very competitive world right now and and anything today is chased by multiple people. And so, our shtick changes a little um, based on a customization of each company and entrepreneur. But in that particular case, uh, it was about um, alignment of values. Mm-hmm. It was about uh, being with them uh till the end um it was about just a belief that um a wool shoe could be a big idea and, and I was
0: and It is. where's the company now like how big is that I mean it, it's unbelievable how well they've done
1: um yeah they've uh, sold a couple million pairs of shoes since they launched
0: it's awesome and so I'm guessing that you're probably competitive you think yeah I I, I do think that. Are you more kind of hate to lose or love to win?
1: It's funny that you say that. I asked Krzyzewski that once, and he said he thinks he hates to lose more than loves to win.
0: I'm more love to win than hates to lose. What's your Uh, answer?
1: I know you haven't asked me this, but getting better every day is what fuels me.
0: I'm asking that at the end. Did you cheat and listen to a podcast? And so
1: uh, I've learned that... Um, I think the best people compete to the best of their ability. And, uh, you know, I love that book uh, by Carol Dweck. Oh. um, Mindset.
0: Mindset. We just went through our books last night. We, like, conmarried the books. And David's like, I'm keeping this one. It's all, like, shriveled up. I'm like, okay, fine.
1: Mindset's great.
0: Is it good? I should read it?
1: Yeah, you should read it. Okay. But anyhow, getting back to your question, um, I'm fueled by the people who – don't believe, uh, and kind of get back to my mom, get back to my grounding about uh, proving them wrong, but proving me right.
0: I do see a common thread that you are a connector, a relationship person. Is that just in your DNA, or have you been deliberate and mindful about that understanding that it's a key component to your success?
1: I think part of being a VC is being a connector. Right. Um, But do you
0: have to work at that?
1: I think that it's a natural thing for me, but challenging myself, my team challenged me to raise the bar in who I was connecting with. Mm. And they basically, in the last year, said you can do better.
0: Meaning like you were being uh, too open to kind of the casual coffee with?
1: No, upping the bar of who.
0: You reach out to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you could pretty much reach out to anybody right now.
1: Well, it's it's easy to say that, right? Yeah. You have to um, develop the self confidence and the.
0: Do you know who Rahul Sood is? He's a a CEO of Unicorn. He anyway, he was on the podcast and he said he just would like cold call Mark Cuban, and he's like, you can't believe how many people return emails because nobody's doing that. Yeah. And he, I was kind of surprised by it. You know that it's just like just doing it, just reaching out, and especially with where you sit
1: yeah well uh, you know i think that for most people you get in life what you think you're entitled to yeah and in a thoughtful way raising being comfortable with yourself and raising your aspirations uh and getting comfortable with rejection Mm -hmm. uh is super powerful as you network and so has that
0: happened to you like, have you had people that you've reached out to that are, and my guess is that you're one or two degrees from pretty much anyone that you would want to talk to, maybe three.
1: I Tops. love this image you have of me. Thank you, Shauna. But it's
0: true. I'm trying to think of somebody that you wouldn't have access to. I can't think of them. I really can't. But whatever. Okay, growth mindset.
1: Um, <laughs>
0: I love your team for challenging you because it's true.
1: Uh, totally true. And, you know, I think that's what great teams do, right? Um It's not just a top-down thing. It's a, we're all in this together and, you know, what can you contribute and how do you do better? And I think uh, the constant, life is a process, uh, both your personal life and your business life. And whether or not it's Coach K or -hmm. some of my other mentors, Howard Schultz, Mm -hmm. um, uh, a guy named Joel Peterson, who's chairman of the board of JetBlue. Or uh, and the
0: Intuit CEO also
1: former uh, CEO Bill Campbell passed away. just passed away. Yeah, but each of those people kind of got stronger in their sixties. They just got better. Yeah, and uh, they lived this um, get better every day. Um, and so I think. Um,
0: do you have a, Do you have like rituals? I do. You do. Yeah. What will you tell us? Um,
1: a ritual I've been doing for a while now is someone calls me every day and asks me 15 questions that, about my personal life and my business life.
0: Who's the someone?
1: Um, just Just a woman who's a coach.
0: Wait, someone calls you every single day?
1: Every weekday.
0: And says 15 questions.
1: There's like half of them are personal and half of them are business. Okay. And it's, did you do this yesterday? Did you do that
0: yesterday? Can you give me an example of like two questions? Like what do you get from that? Accountability?
1: Yeah. And okay. uh, focus on what it is I want to be doing.
0: So it's a present day thing. It's not a look forward thing, like what are you going to do tomorrow? It's a, hey, today. Well,
1: it's uh did you plan your day and accomplish your goals? It's, uh, did you mentor your team? Did you make an impact on your portfolio companies?
0: Oh, my gosh. I should get her number.
1: Um, Sounds intense. Well, everyone's got to find their own questions. I had this coach named Marshall Goldsmith, and Marshall is an incredibly impactful coach, was named one of the best coaches in the world, and uh, he got me onto this. And... um, I'm excited to commit to taking three minutes a day and answering it. And sometimes I rate things on one to 10, and sometimes I didn't focus on that at all. So it's a zero or a two. Um, And are you
0: bringing this into your house, like with your kids and stuff?
1: My family is in the questions, but they don't, that's not their DNA to like ask themselves questions like that.
0: Yeah. The growth mindset thing is, I mean, it's so clear that that's just kind of so much who you are, because I think that with all of these amazing exits, some people would just be like, okay, time to, you know, ski and golf and travel. I realized it when I came over and met with you um, to talk about your business and some of the hiring that you were doing, how engaged you are in the day-to-day is incredible. So what's the succession plan for Mavron?
1: We have a great group of uh, partners, and we're actually we actively talk about, you know, how as a team do we keep growing, and mm-hmm. so uh, we spend a bunch of time um, talking about the next generation and how do they grow into the leadership of the firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got a group of great partners who um, I think have a lot of potential.
0: Yeah, and so our they actively asking you to mentor them or is it just innately happening through osmosis of just working together?
1: I think venture capital is a highly mentor oriented business but in the environment we're in now it seems to be less and less happening Mm -hmm. and uh, I learned that I enjoy mentoring yeah and I
0: have you ever taught?
1: I speak at a bunch of business schools and things like that, but I've never really taught a course. Um, but um, I think either you get juiced by mentoring or you don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, what surprises me is how few CEOs prioritize mentoring.
0: Yeah. Where do you put your juice, energy, fuel outside of?
1: Well, I love being able to take some of the learnings that I've been fortunate enough to get in my business career and help nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And as I think about what I hope to do over time is bring those levels of innovation and test, learn, iterate kind of processes into uh, newer uh, charities and newer nonprofits that are attacking the world and trying to create social good.
0: There's so many that you're involved in and you're on so many boards. How do you prioritize your time? I guess the coach maybe helps you with that.
1: Hopefully he will.
0: You're probably getting hit up for a lot of things, either if you financially take on, or time. And yeah. so how do you decide? Because everything's, you're a heart guy. Everything's going to pull out your heart.
1: Well, I would say I am a heart guy, but I also have challenged myself over time to be more analytical. I think the best entrepreneurs can balance out their brain and analytical ability with their heart, mm-hmm. um, but the answer to your question is I don't take things on unless I think I can do them well. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the fun projects here in Seattle has been getting involved with Seattle Children's, mm-hmm. uh, and I've learned about myself that I tend to get involved because I like the people in uh, nonprofits.
0: Yeah, and so and you also done Brothers for Life, yeah, which is great. You want to tell our listeners what it is and. How you got involved in that
1: sure um it's a it's an organization of veterans helping other veterans uh and everyone's i d f uh israeli defense force veterans and it's a an incredibly powerful model to force veterans to help other veterans and the one plus one equals three is an amazing thing and hopefully over time we'll bring it more and more to the U.S. Mm-hmm. We spend, as you know, a bunch of time with U.S. veterans. And I think it's...
0: And the U.S. veterans have been so moved by it that yeah. I think it would be incredible to bring that to the U.S.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, it's too bad that veterans are a community that I think are the most impacted by what they give to our country. And we haven't really uh, accepted the full consequences of... Trying to make sure that they're healthy and can get through the PTSD and all that other stuff that they endure.
0: What would you be doing if you could wave your magic wand and kind of take that over?
1: Um, You know, I think more and more business people have to spend more and more time and money focusing on trying to help society. Because, you know, it doesn't seem like the government is effective, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether or not that's the local government, the state government... Or certainly the most dysfunctional of all, I think, is the federal government. Mm-hmm. And look at where we are.
0: Yeah. I've been hearing like themes of throughout our conversation around um, just continuing to grow and lean in and um, challenge yourself. And so you're 60-something early. I know that you had your 60th, like maybe a year ago, 61. Yep. Right. What do you want to see when you're 70 as far as growth? It's a weird question, but... Well, like I Like 70 mean, is the new 50. I feel like it keeps moving for me.
1: Um, yeah, exactly. As you get older. <laughs> right? Funny like, how that wait, works.
0: 50 feels like 30 now.
1: Um, I mean, I hope Mavron's led by an incredible team that takes it to a higher level than I took it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll still be involved um, because I think it, it's a wonderful thing to partner with entrepreneurs, um, but maybe it won't have the day-to-day responsibility. Um, I'll be taking some of the lessons more and more that I've had in the private sector and bringing it to the public sector. And hopefully I'll be having a lot of fun. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is fun.
0: Yeah. And I put that on my values and my team scratched it. They were like, isn't that just kind of innate? Like, that's just who we are. I'm, I'm, if I'm not having fun, I'm out. I'm 100% that person.
1: I got a great lesson in 2002. Uh, one of our first uh, funds and a guy named Sam Zell. Uh, I know
0: Sam Zell from Chicago. Correct. Yeah.
1: He was an investor and the fund wasn't doing well because 2000 and 2001 came around and I went to see Sam in Chicago and I'm all nervous and I'm uptight and I've got this presentation and Mr. Zell, call me Sam. Okay. Sam, uh, you know, do you want me to take you through this deck? And I was really nervous and he said, close the deck. I don't want to look at any deck. He said, I have one question for you, and that one question only. Are you having fun? <laughs> and,
0: oh, I love him.
1: And I said, No. Um, basically, I mean, I didn't say that, but, and he said, I don't want to invest in you if you're not having fun. And I thought that was a really insightful um, answer or question because what he was really saying is, um, Are we having fun and do the entrepreneurs that we back feel like we're having fun and do they want to hang with us and uh, I think if you're uptight and in fear mode uh, you're not making good decisions and I think one of the great challenges for a VC is to disconnect from the incredible success or the incredible failure of a particular investment and bring the best you have to the next investment or the next board meeting. And don't sit and uh, help an entrepreneur with the lens of the problem of someone else or the incredible success of someone else, um, but bring what they need and and bring be positive, um, but not be mirrored in um, defensiveness. Mm-hmm. And it's been easier in these macro times that go up to do that. The real challenge is when... You know, instead of being surprised on the upside, uh, three out of four surprises are on the downside. You know, that's 2001, 2002. That's 09, 10, 11.
0: Probably 20, 21. Well,
1: at some point. Everyone, we have a joke in my firm that uh, I'm I'm a believer in cycles and I've lived them. Um, but many people in the venture business now have not experienced a cycle. Yeah. And they think uh, this time is different. Yeah. This time is not different.
0: Yeah. I don't think so. I've been doing this for twenty five years recruiting, and same thing cycles, and it's like okay, let's like get ready for this one. Put on your seatbelt.
1: Yeah. On the other hand, you got to keep uh, doubling uh, down, and while the music's playing, yeah, You've got to keep dancing.
0: Yeah. I know that you you already talked about what fuels you, but I am really curious to know it, it's it can't be money because you've already done well financially, and I know that it's partnering with entrepreneurs. But what's fueling you as far as legacy?
1: You know, I've been super privileged to be around a bunch of people who've created a legacy. So I would say what fuels me for legacy is really two things. One, having Mavron be recognized and respected as the preeminent early stage consumer investor. Mm -hmm. Um, Check.
0: You already did that.
1: I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) But I appreciate you saying that. Um, And then two, um, you know... Uh, as our values uh, talked about, uh, how do you marry profit and purpose and make a dent in the universe? And how do you take your learnings and give back? I mean, I, I remember at Harvard Business School, they had this very simple, you have three parts of your career. And that just feels so far away from today's millennials. But it was the first part was, you know, kind of like building the base. The second part is, like, leveraging it. And then the third part, if you're lucky enough to do those first two things, is to um, do something that M- gives meaningful.
0: back. yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I believe, I'm, I mean, hopefully in the second phase you're doing something meaningful. But my point is you uh, use your pattern recognition and learnings for good. Mm-hmm. And um, so for the next thing for me, um, that's what I hope to do. And just so exciting to bring uh, the lessons of the private world and successful companies to nonprofits or startups in the early stage charity world.
0: Yeah. And and what about your words that you would hope that your children use to describe you? You know,
1: I'd like my kids to uh, hopefully say I was a good dad. I mean, I'd, I'd probably start with that. Um They tell me I'm too humble.
0: You are humble. You've got a real confidence about you. So um, it's nice that you've been able to blend confidence and humility.
1: Um, Well, humility is something that's not omnipresent in today's world. Um, I like to believe that they would say I'm a constant learner. I mean, I think uh, just constantly growing and learning. Uh, I don't care how old you are. and one of the most exciting things about my team is there's someone in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and me. Uh, so not only do we have uh, gender diversity, but we have age diversity. Mm-hmm. And one of the beautiful so things. So
0: diversity, for sure. Uh,
1: one of the beautiful things of uh, Venture Capital is marrying the youthful exuberance of, yeah, why can't we do that, with the pattern recognition of kind of, some uh view of the past um and the most disruptive companies have you know typically a young founder or founders who are incredibly aspirational but part of their key to success is not giving up that vision and goals but then bringing in people to work with them who have been there done that Mm -hmm. and it's that alchemy of experience yet values that, you know, strive for really uh, changing the world Mm -hmm. Uh, that's just so exciting to watch.
0: Yeah. Well, it's fun from where I sit to watch. And I want to continue to watch you flourish. And I want to continue to watch you invest in really cool companies, all of which are exciting. If I was going to be in your industry, I would definitely want to be doing consumer it's like the sexy, cool companies.
1: Well, we're in a window now where consumer is sexy.
0: It's always sexy. Uh, I don't know when it's not going to be.
1: Um, when the Great Consumer Recession <laughs> hit yes. in '09 and '10, everyone said, many people said, you know, it's not sexy. Um, but that's when... But it's
0: cyclical. I mean, it's then it comes back.
1: Yeah. And that's when the best entrepreneurs, without yeah. the benefit of money, built the best businesses.
0: Yeah. People always consume.
1: So... Well, uh, yeah. I thank you for that lovely yeah. comment compliment, and
0: yeah. I thank hope to use listening. Fuel
1: Talent uh, on even more of our companies. This cool format, cool podcast, and thanks, thanks very much, Sean.
0: Yeah, super fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast@fueltalent.com at to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.